So today we're starting a new preaching series in the book of Colossians. That's in the New Testament. So turn there in your Bibles. Colossians is the next door neighbor of Philippians. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're going to do a brief introduction and then we'll spend some time kind of squeezing all the goodness that we can get out of uh, the first few verses here. The author of Colossians, it's, it's Paul and Timothy. Paul is in prison, most likely in Rome. He's writing this letter, and his good friend Timothy is with him. It's possible that Paul is actually dictating this letter, and Timothy is writing it all down with Paul then signing his signature at the end. Here's a map so you can see the location of Colossae. You can see it was near Ephesus. There's Philippi. Paul is up in the far left corner up in Rome in prison as he writes to this church in Colossae. Uh, scholars suggest that Colossians was written around 62 AD during the same time that Paul wrote the letters of Philemon and Ephesians. The big idea, the, the main theme over the entire book is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And so Paul will unpack for the Colossian church, number one, that Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all creation, including the spiritual realm, which uh, consists of angels and demons. And then two, Paul writes to let them know that Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. Faith in him saves, not doing good works or keeping strange laws or anything else. Paul is writing to the Colossian church to let them know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's some of the purpose and the occasion and the background. Uh, the gospel came to the city of Colossae through a man named Epaphras. He most likely heard the gospel through Paul's ministry, and then he went and planted this church. But after a while, some strange and weird false teachers with their strange and weird false teachings began spreading to the church. So Epaphras most likely goes to see Paul in Rome to get some much-needed wisdom on how to deal with all the crazy that is broken out in his little church. And what was this crazy? What was this crazy teaching that began to take root in the Colossian church, that began to spread through the Sunday school classes and in the small groups and on their Facebook page? Scholars debate exactly what it was. If you want to know more about that, you can go read all the options. But it was mostly some kind of teaching that emphasized certain aspects and rituals of Judaism, of Old Testament laws and such as well as there was this sort of mystical kind of New Age philosophy. So it was a mix of Old Testament traditions and laws and some really weird kind of New Agey stuff that emphasized all of the mystical things that happen in the spiritual realm. And so Paul writes to let the Colossians know that, hey, you are safe and secure in Christ. You don't need all this other stuff. You don't have to seek God through strange customs and weird beliefs. You can rest in Christ because you are already in Christ. And yes, there is a mystical element to being united to Christ, but not what was being peddled through this false teaching. Union with Christ is very real and very mystical. When our hearts are united to Him by faith, it's mystical. There's a lot of mystery involved that we are in Him. 
R.C. Sproul says, At the heart of Christianity is the doctrine of the mystical union of the believer with Christ. The New Testament does not only call us to believe in Christ, but to believe into Christ. Faith links us directly into Christ. We become in Him and He in us. This mysterious union is carried over into the relationship between Christ and the church. The church is His bride, whom He has brought into a real, profound, and powerful union. And that's exactly what Paul is going to unpack in this letter to the Colossians. It's the mystical union of Christ and His church. And then that leads us to several kind of key themes in the books. Number one is union with, with Christ. Sixteen times in Colossians, Paul stresses union with Christ, this mystical union that we've been united to Him, that we are in Him and He is in us. He does that with phrases like, in Christ, in whom, in God, in the Spirit, in Him. By the way, all these notes will be online if you uh, are writing feverishly. Union with Christ is kind of the dominant theme of Colossians. Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. And we'll unpack in a moment what it means to be united to Christ. Second, another theme is that Jesus is preeminent over all creation both the physical and the spiritual worlds. Three, God has revealed himself through his son Jesus, thus securing redemption and reconciliation for all who trust in him by faith. Fourth, through the cross, Jesus has defeated Satan and all his minions. Number five, Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectations and promises. So Gentiles, these Gentile believers in Colossae, now share in the heritage of the old covenant people of God. They are the people of God. And then six, believers need to hear the gospel continually so that it will bear fruit in their lives. And so we're going to unpack all of this as we make our way through this book. And Colossians is a very pertinent book for our present age because you as a Christian are being bombarded, me as a Christian, I'm being bombarded with all kinds of thoughts and beliefs and worldviews out there on the internet, on social media, on TV, in the news. And our temptation might be to just give in to the trends of culture so that we don't offend anyone or, God forbid, so that we don't get canceled, Right? Everyone's afraid of being canceled these days. God forbid you say something offensive and get yourself canceled. Listen, the Bible is full of stuff that will get you canceled. You don't make it very far into Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, where you have the sanctity of human life mentioned. That God created human beings, male and female, in his image, and therefore they have worth, and therefore they should not be killed in the womb. And then you get marriage, which is between a man and a woman, and that's it. One man united to one woman. So the first two chapters of Genesis will get you canceled. And so Colossians is a politically incorrect book for cancel culture. And so I hope our time in this book cements your belief that Jesus reigns supreme over all creation, Satan, demons, presidents, governors. 
when I typed that up, I realized I put them all together. Satan, demons, presidents, and governors. (laughs) Didn't do it intentionally. It just kind of came out. Christian, you don't have to fear this world or what anyone thinks about you or says about you or what you believe because you are a Christian. You don't have to fear cancel culture because the only cancel that should dominate your thinking is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15, where he says this to the Colossian church, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the kind of cancel that I want to concern myself with. He canceled my record of debt and nailed it to a cross. He disarmed all satanic powers and triumphed over them. And if he did that, what do we have to fear? He triumphed over Satan and all demonic entities and beings. And we're going to be afraid of what a human being thinks of us? What can man, what can culture do to us? cancel us? Big deal. I'm in union with Christ, and that can never get canceled. I will never be canceled by God, no matter what I say or what I do. You will never be canceled by God over something that you say, over something that you do. That's the hope of the gospel. My prayer is that our time in this book, in the book of Colossians, will give you a steel spine and a soft heart. A steel spine and a soft heart as you try to live as a disciple of Jesus in our current political and social climate. May the Holy Spirit strengthen your spine so that you don't fear any man, thus enabling you to stand up for truth. And then may the Holy Spirit soften your heart so that it breaks for lost people who hate you Because of what you believe. Because you won't affirm their lifestyle or affirm their pronouns or affirm their beliefs. So steel spines and soft hearts are what we're hoping for here. That's what we want from Colossians. And who better to help us than the Apostle Paul, who has a steel spine as he writes this letter because he's in prison, because he stood up for truth. And he has a soft heart as he's concerned about lost people hearing the gospel because in chapter 4 he will pray, pray that a door opens that we can share the hope that we have. Paul writes with a steel spine and a soft heart and that's what we need to live as a disciple in our current cultural climate. Here's our big idea today. Find your identity in your Savior, not your situation. Find your identity, who you are, in your Savior and not your situation. Because this is what's driving everything in our culture today. People want an identity. They want to find something that they can latch on. The trends of culture come and go. And people are lemmings. They just follow along. If it became popular to say, I am an elephant, people would start doing it. 
Because people are just followers. People are looking for an identity. They just want to belong. And so whatever culture puts out there, that's what they do. What was everybody obsessed with this weekend? Some balloon in the sky. If you think that some balloon could float into our space and not get shot down by our government, and we just woke up, it's like, wow, there's a really slow-moving balloon flying over. Oh, we're in trouble. If you think we didn't know that was there and could shoot it down, come on. We will get caught up with anything, anything in this world. Everything distracts us from Jesus. So we need to find our identity in Christ. It's essential for us or we will be swept up with the trends of culture trying to follow what everybody is into. And that's what Paul does at the beginning of Colossians. He's writing to this church to let them know that they are in Christ, that Christ is their life, as he says in chapter 3. Jesus is their life. Jesus is their everything. So Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 1. I almost got worked up over that balloon a minute ago. But I was like, cool your heels. Look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul begins this letter the way he does in all his letters. It reminds me of this picture that's been floating around. Maybe you've seen it too. It kind of summarizes how Paul's letters usually go. He usually starts off and he says, grace, and then something along the lines of, I thank God for you, And then hold fast to the gospel. And then for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. And then finally, Timothy says hi. That's pretty much Colossians. That's pretty much all of Paul's letters. Paul begins by introducing himself to this church. He had never met them before, so he introduces himself, introduces his friend Timothy, the one who always says hi. And since they've never met Paul, he wants them to know why he has the authority to speak into their lives and why they should listen to him. It's because he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is quick to point out his credentials here. He is who he is because of God. Paul did not wake up one day and think, well, I want to be an apostle. Why is Peter an apostle? What did he do? Why can't I be an apostle? This isn't fair. I want to be an apostle. Paul is an apostle by the will of God because God determined it, because God decided that, because God chose him, not because he decided to be something that he wasn't. They weren't handing out apostle participation trophies in Paul's day. Listen, you are who you are because God determined that for you in eternity past. He picked your parents He picked your eye color, he picked your personality, he picked your laugh, he picked your nose, and he said it was good. And that means, and this is politically incorrect, that means you don't get to pick your pronouns. God picked them for you. He made this world, and he filled it with male and female. And who you are, and and who you are when you were born is who you are. Who you are when you were born is who you are. God made this world. God made you, and he gets to make the rules. And if he made you male, you're male. And if he made you female, you're female. The fact that people can't define what a female is is indicative of how 
lost our culture is. If you struggle with this and you need help with this, that's what we're here for. We will walk with you and disciple you and explain these things to you. But God determines who you are. Many people who are struggling with things are just struggling with an identity. They just want to belong. Paul also says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word Christ means anointed one. It's uh, the term for Messiah. So I think there's a reason Paul says Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ because he's emphasizing that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of the Old Testament. This is significant because Paul wants these Gentile believers to know that they have been grafted into the family of God. They belong even though they aren't Jewish. So they don't have to go and try to be Jewish or do Jewish rituals or do Jewish things because they are already in Christ. They are a part of the people of God. And that's why Paul calls them saints. Paul uses a term that is all over the Psalms to describe the people of God, people who have been set apart unto God. For instance, Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing praises to Yahweh, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 37, 28, for Yahweh loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Paul is letting the Colossians know that they are saints, the people of God. They are Israel. They live in the dawning of the end time kingdom. They have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. They're in. And they don't have to try to be Jewish and celebrate the Sabbath or do anything like that or the Feast of Booths. They're in even though they're Gentiles. Paul then calls Timothy, you know, the one who always says hi. Paul calls Timothy brother, and he calls the Colossians faithful brothers. So this is family language. Paul refers to God as father in the introduction here. So Paul's pointing out the familial nature of the body of Christ. It's family language at the beginning of this letter. God is our father Jesus is our older brother. We have siblings made up of Jews and Gentiles, and we're all united by the Spirit. And that's really at the heart of what it means to be called saints. We are set-apart ones. In other words, we have been adopted into God's family. We are in Christ. We've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and we belong to Him now. But Paul also tells them that they are in Christ. And this is one of the most important but neglected doctrines of the Christian faith. Union with Christ. What is union with Christ and why is it so important? Union with Christ is what has happened to every believer in Jesus. We've been united to him, united to Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We are in Christ now. This phrase, in Christ or in Him, is the New Testament's favorite way to describe Christians. What's the most common way to describe believers in the New Testament? It's in Christ. In fact, the term Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. But the phrase, in Christ or in Him, occurs around 165 times. That's why I've titled this series in Colossians, In Him. Sixteen times in this book, Paul will mention being in Christ or in Him. That's why this doctrine is so important. 
It's because the Holy Spirit has spilled so much ink on it in the New Testament. He wanted us to know that we are in Christ. When the Spirit spills a lot of ink on something in the Bible, you need to pay attention. He's telling us, you're in Christ. That means that nothing is more basic or more central to the Christian life than being in union with Christ, being in Christ, united to Him by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. We've talked about this through the years. You've heard me use this phrase many times. What does it mean that we're in union with Christ? It means that we are united to Him at all points of what He has accomplished. We share in His life. Christ is our life, Paul says. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. We share in His death because we've been baptized into His death. We share in His resurrection because we've been raised with Him. We share in his ascension because we've been raised to heavenly places. We share in what is called his heavenly session, meaning we sit with him in heavenly places because our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And we'll get to all that in chapter 3. And then finally, we will share in his soon return. As Paul says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. And so the good news of all the good news of the good news is that you and I are united to Jesus at all points. It's what makes the gospel good news. It's the very heart of the gospel. As theologian John Murray said, nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. That means when we are talking about the gospel, union with Christ should immediately come to mind. Why? Because the greatest gift that the gospel brings to us is God himself. The greatest benefit of being in union with Christ, united to Christ, is Christ. It's Jesus. He is the greatest gift. Knowing him, enjoying him, being united to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Clothed in his righteousness, forgiven. But none of that is worth a lick if those blessings come apart from Christ. All the blessings and benefits of the gospel aren't worth a lick if they're separated from Jesus. If God says, I'll forgive you, I'll clothe you with righteousness, but you're not united to my son, you don't have him, then they're not worth anything, are they? We want Jesus. We don't simply want to be forgiven of our sins. We want Jesus. We want to be forgiven of our sins. But we want him. Listen, it would not be heaven if if God said, enter into the joy of the Lord. You're forgiven. It's going to be great. No more sin. The Trinity's leaving, but you guys have fun. That wouldn't be good news. We want the one who forgives our sins because he is our life. Union with Christ is so practical because it gets at the very heart of who we are and how we act and why we do the things that we do. That's why Paul brings it up uh, so early for the Colossians, because they were being tempted to look for something else out, something else in the Christian life. Always looking, Christians are always looking for that secret, right? That one doctrine, that one teaching, that one truth. You know, it's like if, if you discover this, you'll really be set free. And, and you won't sin as much, and sin won't be, it won't be as tempting, and you'll just you'll walk in this new kind of freedom to all that, okay? You're a sinner. You're going to struggle with sin the rest of your life. Until your dying breath, you're going to struggle with sin. There's no secret out there that elevates you above other Christians 
so that somehow sin doesn't pull at you anymore, okay? Sin comes from within, and as long as you have a heartbeat, your heart is going to be drawn to sin. There's no secret out there. Union with Christ, though, can actually set us free. It's tailor-made for Monday mornings. It's made for sinners who struggle with their identity and often live in the fear of man and who are slaves to what other people think of them. Let me ask you, do you live in the paralyzing fear of what other people think about you? Oh my gosh, what do they think about me? Do you ever go to an event, social event at church or something, and you say something, and you leave, and you're like, oh my God, that's all you can think about. You ever replay everything you said, and what are they thinking about me? Are you a tired, weary, and exhausted people pleaser? Just trying to do things to please everyone, not make them mad at you, don't want to stir the waters? then union with Christ can set you free. Who wants in? Who wants to be free of the fear of man? So you walk into church and you're like, I don't care that my hair is messed up today and it wouldn't do what it wanted to do. I'm just going in. I don't care what people think about me. I'm just going to go in there and worship Jesus and love people. Who wants to learn how to quit being a people pleaser? Kind of stand up and say, you know what? No, I don't. You know, it, it's so practical as like a people pleaser. It's like you don't want to ask the waiter for a refill of water because you're like, oh. anybody feel that way ever? Yeah? Look at all the hands that go up. That's, it's as practical as that. You're like, oh, you don't want to return the food. This is not what I ordered. And I asked for like medium and like there's still a vein pumping here, but I don't want to send it back. So I'm just going to eat this really bloody steak. It's the fear of man. It's being a people pleaser. Who wants to be set free from that? So you can say, excuse me, this isn't what I ordered. If that's you, then find your identity in your Savior and not your situation. Find your identity in, in who you are in Christ, not whatever's happening in your life. Rankin Wilborn says, to be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempt to find or craft an acceptable identity, which is what's happening in our culture. Everybody's, try, everybody's frantically trying to, to find some identity that the culture will say, yes, we applaud that. We are with you and support you. That's what our culture is doing. Everyone's desperately trying to find some identity that the majority of culture would say, yes, we support you. And how evil the people are that don't. Let me start the quote over. Start a preaching mid-quote. Sometimes you do that. Rankin Wilborn says, to be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempt to find or craft an acceptable identity or your tireless work to manage your own reputation, these are over and done. You can rest in Christ. You don't have to be intimidated by anyone, ever. Who are you? You are in Christ. And you no longer need to fear the judgment of God when God looks at you. He sees you hidden in Christ. This is freedom. This is confidence. This is good, good news. Being in Christ is the center of Paul's theology. Being in Christ is the most important thing about you. It trumps everything else. For the Christian, everything is found in Christ and not in ourselves. It's objective reality that is outside of us, not subjective. Looking inside you for anything will not yield the grace and peace that Paul prays here for the Colossians. Looking inside will only produce pride or despair. 
When you look inward into your life and how good have I been as a Christian, you'll either get pride or despair. You'll think, you know what, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as that guy. Or you'll, get dis- you'll be full of despair. You'll see all the sin. We must look outside of us to Christ crucified. That's where our true identity is now. So what does it mean to be in union with Christ? Sinclair Ferguson explains. He says, it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. What does it mean to be united to Christ? It's as if all the medals and pins and honors of Christ have been pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. This is amazing. You are so united to to Jesus, Christian. You are so one with him that if you walked into heaven right now, all of heaven would stand and salute you. That's how united to Jesus you are. You are so one with him that if you walked into heaven right now, everybody would uh, clap and cheer. Chap and clear. They would clap and cheer. That's how tight your union with him is, the bond. So the gospel frees us then from seeing ourselves as either the sum total of our failures or the sum total of our successes. As believers, our identity is now linked with and rooted in Jesus who loved himself and gave himself for us, who loved us and gave himself for us. Your identity is rooted not in what you have done, either success or failure, but in what Jesus has done for you. Listen, your, your identity is not wrapped up in all the bad things that you've done. And it's not wrapped up in all the good things you've done. None of that. It's all wrapped up on what Jesus has already done for you. Christ, who is your life. And Paul understood this. This is coming from a man who had it all. Paul's resume in Philippians 3 shows you that he had it made in Judaism. He had it all. But he was bankrupt apart from Jesus. And now Paul's identity is bound up with his Savior. This is preeminent for a disciple. You can be known as a Dallas Cowboys fan. You can be known as the lover of biscuits and gravy. You fill in the blank. But the core of who you really are is your connection and calling to Jesus. Though Paul is a slave of the Roman government waiting on death row, he finds his identity in relation to Jesus. Now, too often, we view ourselves in relation to where we are at in life. We let our situations and circumstances determine our outlook on life. Let me say that again, because we all do this. We let our situations and our circumstances determine our outlook on life. We all do that. The title of our lives is often dictated by our circumstances and our feelings, but this is not the case for Paul. Wherever Paul finds himself, he knows that he is where he is precisely because this is where his master wants him. So Paul finds himself in prison for the gospel. He knows that his master has allowed him to be chained up. Not only that, it also means that even though he is in prison, he's not really in prison. He may be locked up, but his situation doesn't have him locked up. It's all about perspective. He's in prison, but more than that, he's in Christ. He's in prison, suffering. His situation is terrible. His circumstances are terrible. But more than being in prison, he's in Christ. So understand this. Who you are is not your circumstance. Who you are is determined by Jesus Christ. 
So it doesn't matter what city you live in. It matters whether you're in Christ or not. It doesn't matter what state you live in. What really matters is whether you're in Christ or not. Now listen, I get it. Living in California is tough. If the politics here don't bother you, you need to check your pulse. I don't like a lot of things about California. It's why there has been a California exodus. It's why we've had 30 plus families leave grace over the last couple of years. Because people want to get out of here. I don't blame them. The only thing that has kept me sane living here is reminding myself that I'm in Christ. So God may call you to move to another state. There's nothing wrong with that. If God called these people to move to another state, then God called them. I'd recommend Texas if you're looking for one to move to. But whatever state you live in, what matters far more than that is if you are in Christ. Let me ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in him? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you placed your trust in him? Because this is the most important thing about you. Where are you? Are you still in Adam? Are you still lost in the deadness and trespasses of your sins? Or are you in Christ? Now let me ask you, where have you sought to root your identity? What are you going through in your life? Are your circumstances dictating your perspective? Look at Paul. He's in prison, on death row, and yet he is rock solid in his hope and joy because of who he is in Christ. He may be a prisoner of Rome, but his real title, his real identity is bound up and rooted in Jesus Christ. And then what about the Colossians? Notice their physical location at Colossae. They live in Colossae, but Colossae does not determine their identity. Their identity is rooted in Jesus Christ as well, Paul says. The way we would say it here is that we are at Santa Maria. But that's not who we really are. We're in Christ at Santa Maria. The first part of that is more important than the last part. So Paul is reminding them, you may be at Colossae, but your true identity is found in Christ Jesus. And your true identity as a disciple is found in relation to Christ Jesus. Not your situations, not your surroundings, not your circumstances. Your true identity as a disciple of Jesus is found not in what you do or what you don't do, but in what Jesus has already done for you. There's a story of a pastor who met a young girl in his Sunday school class. He knew she was a first-time visitor. No one like her had ever been to his church before. And as he taught the class, he couldn't wait to talk to her afterwards. Why? Because of the way she looked. She was a goth, a gothic, if you will. She was completely dressed in all black, had pale face, you know, white pale face makeup, black eyeliner, black lipstick, black uh, fingernail polish on. She was wearing mini chains and had mini body piercings. And so as soon as the class is over, the pastor's like, I got to find out who this girl is. And she told him her name. And then the pastor asked her what she did. And that's, what do you do? I mean, isn't this how we always identify ourselves? What do you do? As if that's who we are, right? Do we really want to be always associated with our job? Is that who we really are? But what she said floored him. He asked her who she was, what her story was, what she did. This is her reply. She said, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a machine operator. 
She operated some kind of machine at work, but that wasn't where she found her identity. Like, what do you do? She was a disciple of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a machine operator. Her real identity was not wrapped up in her job. What's your identity? Do you see yourself first and foremost as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Cleverly disguised as a mom, lawyer, student, mailman, barista, pastor. What's your identity today? Who are you? Fill in the blank. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Cleverly disguised as a blank. The first part of that is the most important. The first part of that will shape how you do the second part of that. Find your identity in your Savior and not your situation. Ray Ortland said, God wants us to revel in our union with his son. God wants you to get excited that you are forgiven of your sins, that you are united to his son, that you died with him at Calvary, that Calvary was your judgment day. You don't have to fear the judgment of God. God wants you to revel in that. He wants you to get excited. He wants you to to not sit there and think, oh, I can't get too excited about this. He wants you to get excited about it. There's no limit to the, the reveling that we can take in Christ and what he has done for us. God wants us to go crazy with this. He wants you to enjoy what his son has done for you and not to feel any shame for that. Not to be thinking, but I'm such a sinner. Of course you are. It's why Jesus came. Duh. That shouldn't keep you from reveling in what Jesus did for you. It's why he came. He came to save people like you. So yeah, you sin, but revel that you're united to Christ. It's the whole point of Christianity. And we do that at the table that we come to today, the Lord's Supper, communion. This is, this is where we revel in our union with Jesus. This is where we come to find our identity. This is where we come as the family of God, as brothers and sisters, Jews and Gentiles, united by the Spirit, where we come to celebrate what our older brother Jesus has done for us, to celebrate that we've been united by the Holy Spirit, to celebrate that we're in the family of God, that we've been adopted, and that we belong. This is where we celebrate that. So as you come today and you eat and drink, revel in that. Enjoy it. Soak it up. Don't think I'm too sinful to come to the table. That's the whole point. The whole point is that you are a sinner, and that's why God gave us the Lord's Supper. Not so you sit in the pew and think, I'm too sinful. I'll drink judgment unto myself. I might die. The whole point is for you to have a a broken, contrite heart and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and you're my only hope. And I get reinforced, my faith gets strengthened by coming forward and saying, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Don't stay in your seat because of your sin. You come down here and you confess it and you collapse on Jesus. I met so many Christians like, I can't go up there because of what I've done. Do you think everybody else coming forward hasn't done stuff? Listen, if we stayed in our seats because of our sin... These plates are going to sit here for a long time, and that grape juice is going to get really moldy. If we stayed in our seats because we think, you know what, I've just sinned too bad, and none of us are coming forward. Jesus wants you to come here. He wants you to come in here and revel in what he has done for you. It's the whole point of Christianity. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are.
Thank you that we are united to you. You are in us and we are in you. And Lord, there's a lot of mystery there. We believe it by faith. And we admit that we're sinners. And Lord, oh, our sin, we know it so well, Jesus. It just gnaws at us. It just weighs on us. And we just want to come this morning and confess it. And come find freedom and forgiveness again. Reassure us of your great love for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Help us to celebrate it, Jesus, to revel in what you have done for us as you are glorified, Lord, when we do that. In your name we pray, amen.